Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly sponsored by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr Louise Kugler, a General Practitioner, and today it is my pleasure to welcome Professor Windsor to discuss chronic pancreatitis, a debilitating condition which is often diagnosed as more common forms of abdominal pain. Professor John Windsor is a trained general surgeon who has had further fellowship training in hepatobiliary and pancreatic, gastroesophageal and laparoscopic surgery. He works at Auckland City Hospital and the University of Auckland. Privately, he also works at Mercy Ascot Hospital in Auckland and specialises in pancreatic, biliary, gastric and esophageal surgery. So John, talking today about chronic pancreatitis, could you please start by providing our listeners with a definition? Yes, the um, definition of chronic pancreatitis has definitely changed over the years, but in essence, this is a, uh, a lifelong inflammation and fibrosis of the pancreas, often associated with calcification of the parenchyma and stones within the pancreatic duct associated with strictures that goes on to form or develop pancreatic exocrine and in the later phase of the disease, endocrine uh, dysfunction, so steatory and diabetes. They're not essential to the diagnosis, but they're also a very common sequelae to it. How do patients present clinically to our surgery and who gets chronic pancreatitis? Let's talk about the second question first, because I think that um, recently there's been some very important discoveries around the genetic mutations that underpin uh, chronic pancreatitis. And we have five or six now which have been implicated. And so increasingly we recognize that this in, in, the, in probably the majority of patients have some degree of genetic abnormality underlying it. And it may just be that it predisposes them to have um, a greater effect from alcohol consumption, whereas in some cases it actually causes pancreatitis itself. So the genetic causes are important. Um, we recognize families with this problem, uh, particularly in India in Kerala and in Orissa. So if, if, if an Indian patient has uh, chronic abdominal pain, then we, we definitely look for genetic uh, abnormalities underpinning that. Um, the most common recognized cause of chronic pancreatitis is the alcoholic. And the interesting thing is that the dose of alcohol is not related to the risk of chronic pancreatitis. So there seems to be cofactors that are important here. We now recognize that smoking is at least as important as alcohol as an independent risk factor. And of course, people who drink a lot often smoke a lot, they go together, but actually they're an additive problem. So th that's a group of patients at risk. There's also other those patients who've had uh, a pancreatic injury in their childhood falling over a bicycle, for instance, they may have a pancreatic duct stricture, but that's, that's really the most important causes. And what are patients going to tell us what do we need to be thinking about from their history to make us think about chronic pancreatitis? So the um, feature of chronic pancreatitis, which we all understand and recognize, is pain. This is a painful condition. Some have said it's the most painful abdominal condition. It's responsible for an increased suicide risk, for instance. It's such a bad problem. If I digress for a minute, I kind of think of chronic pancreatitis as lepers were thought of in biblical times. These are people who are difficult to manage, sometimes unattractive, are, are a fall between the cracks of services, um, are labeled as drug seekers, et cetera, et cetera. You've seen these patients yourself, I'm sure. Uh, these patients require extra care, extra compassion, and uh, often need to be guided through a complex 
hospital system which appears to them to be hostile to them. Um, so a patient presents with abdominal pain, and this is a pain which eventually becomes chronic persistent, but in the early stages might be intermittent. Uh, pain has been poorly assessed over the years, and we're doing active research at the moment to get a better um, uh, comprehensive assessment of pain to also include the issues of central sensitization, the issues on the impact on employment, uh, of family life, uh, of quality of life specifically, uh, so that we get a, a much better idea about how this pain problem is affecting the patient in their entirety. I think with that kind of information, we'll start to understand some of the underlying different mechanisms that are responsible for chronic pancreatitis pain. There's the neuritis, where there's just the inflammation of the nerve endings within the pancreas. Uh, what we look for is, is obstructive pancreatopathy. That means that the pancreatic duct is blocked or partially blocked. And these patients have what we notice as postprandial pain. So they might have a background of pain, but if they have a meal, within 20 minutes of that meal, they've got a flare up of their pain. Those are the patients that I think we can help very well. And we'll get on to the treatment of chronic pancreatitis in a minute. Narcotic addiction is a feature of these patients. And unfortunately, we now recognize opioid hyperalgesia as a real problem, that the more morphine you give, it may actually make the pain worse. The importance of identifying these patients before they become narcotic dependent. We do see patients coming in with undifferentiated abdominal pain already on, on high dose of narcotics and already with central sensitization of their pain, extremely difficult to, to deal with. So an early detection of chronic pancreatitis, anybody with a, a real painful abdominal condition, you need to think pancreas, either acute pancreatitis, recurrent acute pancreatitis, or chronic pancreatitis. So we recognize a continuum now. So be looking for features of chronic pancreatitis. The diagnosis of it is actually quite difficult in the early stages. We do recognize established chronic pancreatitis with characteristic changes in the duct, blunting of the secondary ducts, dilatation of the main duct, atrophy and scarring of the parenchyma itself. Uh, but patients with painful conditions, including chronic pancreatitis, don't necessarily have any of those morphological changes in the gland. And so it's very difficult. Endoscopic ultrasound now is the best way of trying to see the early fibrotic changes within the pancreas to allow for an early diagnosis. Sometimes the penny doesn't, doesn't actually drop until the patient with chronic pain starts to develop steatorrhea, but that's often 10 years into the disease course before overt steatorrhea becomes apparent. And these patients, of course, come in with malnutrition, vitamin deficiencies, and uh, abdominal bloating, colic, increased flatus, and the characteristic pale, greasy stools of steatorrhea. End-stage chronic pancreatitis goes beyond that to include uh, diabetes. There is a concept out there that people talk about was we'll just wait until the chronic pancreatitis burns itself out, which I think is one of the most cruel dictums I've heard in my practice. Um, what you're really saying is we can't really address this and we're just going to hope that in time uh, the pancreas will burn out. Uh, there's a lot we can do early. We've got to address the nihilism uh, associated with this disease. And uh, we know that intervention before narcotic addiction um, is actually very successful in treating these patients where it's appropriate. 
Uh, and if we leave it too late, um, it's very difficult to retrieve these patients and give them a better quality of life. Their outcomes in chronic pancreatitis are poor. Um, overall, the mortality is higher in these patients and they on average live 20 to 30 years less than their equivalent population. So this is a, a very significant disease. It's not as common as acute pancreatitis. In fact, we'd expect probably 100 to 150 uh, per year in the whole of New Zealand. But it's an important disease to identify. So John, this is a very difficult disease with a huge psychological burden. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. I agree with you. I think that the psychological overlay in these patients is, is complicated and demanding. Um, interestingly, there is a suicide risk associated with disease. And uh, from a surgeon's perspective, I've been alarmed to read a recent study that showed that the suicide risk is greatest after failed surgery. And I think it's because surgery is put at the end of the line. It seemed to be the the last great hope for these patients, instead of what we're trying to do is offer surgery early. If it's kind of seen as the last resort and it fails, then it's devastating for the patient. So I think um, as I've come to realize that surgery is really about applied psychology, setting our patients up for intervention uh, with realistic expectations, but not extinguishing hope is really, really important. But these patients who are often dependent on substances uh, are also patients who have depression and anxiety, have poor coping strategies. And so part of the assessment of these patients in the regional pain services that we have in New Zealand is to actually involve a psychologist to try and um, break down what are the issues for them in particular so that they can be specifically addressed. I think this is really a very important message. Thank you, John. That's an excellent practice point for us to bear in mind with mm. our patients. Okay. So John, how exactly is the diagnosis made? What tests do we need to consider in general practice? The diagnosis of chronic pancreatitis is the clinical picture, plus the morphology, which we talked about, plus the endocrine and exocrine deficiencies. So if you have a patient with chronic pain, uh, we would do imaging, and the imaging of choice is the MR, MRCP, because it gives us a non-invasive way of looking at what's happening in the pancreatic duct. If we're uncertain, we might go forward to endoscopic ultrasound, which is invasive, but does give us slightly better imaging of the parenchyma uh, and to pick up those early changes. So that's how we make the diagnosis. If we're in the situation where we're picking up steatorrhea and diabetes, this patient's well-established and it's not going to allow us the early intervention that we're seeking for. Are there any biochemical tests we should be doing in the community? Um, you'll find that a patient with an acute flare-up of chronic pancreatitis will be able to mount an enzyme response. So lipase or amylase will go up. Um, there is a subgroup of patients, a very small subgroup, who have autoimmune pancreatitis. They'll present in a similar sort of way but their imaging is different. They have a sausage-shaped pancreas, which is not atrophic, you know, faded away. It's actually big, and it often seems to have almost a skin around it. Quite a characteristic feature. In that situation, doing an IgG4 uh, may be elevated, but if it's normal, it doesn't exclude autoimmune pancreatitis. What we do with those patients is we give them a trial of steroids, and it's remarkable how quickly their pain goes and how the morphology of the pancreas returns to normal we would normally manage that patient under immunology. 
Um, but there's no real characteristic, well, there's no biomarker that will tell us this is unequivocally chronic pancreatitis early on. There's no biomarker that will actually give us any prognostic value in terms of what's going to happen to this patient. What would the red flags be, John, that would require an urgent referral? This is a disease that is chronic by definition, and it's unusual to have um, an acute referral. Patients who have acute flare-ups of their chronic pancreatitis characteristically come in acutely, so we often see these patients on a monthly basis for a while before we get a handle on, on where we can go with these patients. So it's the acute flare-up of pain which is really the reason for the acute admission. I think the red flag in this disease is recognition of the fact that chronic inflammation of the pancreas is a high risk factor for pancreatic cancer. And so cross-sectional imaging looking for a mass within the pancreas is important. And we recognize that chronic pancreatitis can form an inflammatory mass. And this is a conundrum for us. Is an inflammatory mass a malignant mass or not? And sometimes we never can tell. And we resect the head of the pancreas if that's the inflammatory mass. Um, to exclude cancer and also to relieve what effectively is an obstruction of the pancreas due to the inflammatory mass. So a patient with chronic pancreatitis has been referred. What's their management plan going to look like? Well, it's usually a management in the outpatient clinic. So we'll deal with the acute pancreatic flare, allow the pain to settle, try and improve their analgesia, and then bring them back. We'll investigate them for morphology because we want to identify those patients in whom we can intervene. There's endoscopic intervention, and there's surgical intervention, and there's radiological intervention. So endoscopic intervention is widely used, and it's really appropriate for if there's a stricture in the pancreatic duct in the head of the pancreas, or there's a single stone less than five millimeters in the pancreatic duct in the head that is readily accessible by the endoscope. Surgery is being studied with randomized control trials and shown that surgical intervention in the appropriate patient is the most effective way of getting durable pain relief. But there are a subgroup of patients in whom we can do that for. We want to find patients who have postprandial pain, that is an obstructive type of picture, and a dilated pancreatic duct. In those patients, we open up the pancreatic duct, effectively decompressing the pancreas getting rid of that acute postprandial flare of pain. And over time, we see that the background pain also subsides. There is another subgroup of patients who are best treated surgically, and I mentioned that just before. If there's a mass in the pancreas, either in the head or in the body tail, uh, we'll take out uh, that. And maybe of interest, uh, there's some centers in the United States and in Europe that are now doing total pancreatectomy, removing the whole pancreas, uh, and doing an auto-islet transplant, that is infusing isolated islets taken from the resected pancreas into the liver to try and reduce their insulin requirement. That's experimental, but I think patients are going to be talking about this to us uh, because it's readily available on the internet. So in our general practice surgeries, what should we be thinking about? It sounds like lifestyle management is, is a cornerstone, but what else should we be thinking about with these patients? Well, the thing that bothers the patients the most is pain relief. So I, I do see um, patients being um, prescribed liberal narcotics um, before they've actually seen a pain specialist or a pancreatic specialist. I think an early referral to either a pancreatologist or to a pain service is really important because there are narcotic sparing approaches to analgesia which need to be given here. Not just 
gabapentum and amitriptyline, but also coping mechanisms. So the management of pain is highly complex. Uh, I don't even profess to be an expert in it, but I recognize that working with a pain specialist is critical in helping these patients. The second thing obviously is to look at the alcohol and smoking. Um, patients often treat their pain by having more alcohol and smoking. It's their way of coping. We need to substitute that with cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness, or other strategies which the psychologists within a regional pain service can offer really good advice uh, to help them in that area as well. So I think the general practitioner has a really important supportive role there in helping them manage these things in the community. Getting off alcohol and getting off smoking clearly is an ongoing battle for many of our patients and um, support at the general practitioner level is going to be really important for that too. A subgroup with a family history, how do we deal with these patients? Yeah, so I think we do recognise that it, patients who present to us with a history, a family history of two first degree relatives who've also had chronic pancreatitis and, and they don't have any obvious risk factors. This is a really important subgroup to, to investigate for, not just because we might be able to intervene earlier for them, but also because of the risk of pancreatic cancer in these patients. So in patients with hereditary uh, pancreatitis, uh, we'll do a baseline screening of them with MR, MRCP to see whether they've got any morphology. If there's a clear family pedigree, then we'll also consider genetic testing, but we'll only do that uh, through the genetic service. Um, they'll also give them the counseling that's necessary around gene testing. But I think that you, what you want to do is get these patients into a pancreatic clinic, uh, you know, so that they have a point of contact with a specialist who can set up a plan for them uh, that can then be carried out by them with the help of the general practitioner. So I think an early referral, early um, way of managing this lifelong problem <laughs> is really important, that they have the confidence that they can uh, access us as they need. So for our listeners today, John, what would your take-home messages be, please? Patients with chronic pancreatitis are often neglected or overlooked. Um, I feel very passionate about the importance of uh, acknowledging the, the really difficult situation they find themselves in. I think giving them a very clear plan and a clear understanding of the disease really probably requires extended conversation with a pancreatologist. Trying to avoid excess narcotics is all very well, but we actually want to establish good analgesia so that they can live and function in society and with their families. But there are strategies I've mentioned about trying to reduce narcotic dependence. We want to identify the subgroups of patients in whom endoscopic or surgical intervention is appropriate because it's far more effective before central sensitization you know, um, develops. Uh, and so early referral again is important for that. Um, I think that maintaining them in the community, uh, good support for exocrine insufficiency, good support for endocrine insufficiency and analgesia are really the hallmarks of good long-term management of these chronic patients. Thanks for talking to us today, John. It's been a pleasure. If you're a New Zealand general practitioner and would like to claim CME points, please go to our website and fill in a reflection of learning form, www.goodfellow.org. Thanks for listening.